This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. It's not only one of the most amazing, great sporting stories of the recent times, but also right back through history of AFL, and that's the Western Bulldogs AFL grand final win in 2016. Author Martin Flanagan couldn't be it couldn't be a better person really to write the history of this season. Um, he was given access to Bulldogs coach Luke Beveridge's notes and game diaries, and spoke to pretty much everyone involved in the club and its win. And he's here to tell us about it. And um, what a cool book! And sounds like a great journey to write it, Martin. Yeah, well, it was um, it was a magic happening and um, a mysterious happening. And um, to get inside the mystery, even though at the end I don't know, I understood a lot more than I did at the start. But it was still, um, yeah, it was a lovely thing, and they're a great club. And it's not just the players, but that you know that everyone out there thought they were part of it the, you know the women who worked in the footy department the, the trainers the supporters that was the great thing about it every you know somehow rather it became this force field that everyone everyone was part of and i think we all felt it yeah. whether you're a doggy supporter or not but you'd written about the bulldogs before i didn't yeah. realize until reading this book that you had kind of been in the playing room before to write about them. Well, yeah. Tell us about that in 1993. Well, yeah, 1993, I, I, I got asked by the then coach, Terry Wheeler, to come out and write a book on them. And I was actually trying to write a novel on football and I got stuck and I thought, I'll go out and I'll learn more about the game. But when I got out there, the dogs had only just survived. The AFL had tried to merge them four years earlier. And when I got out there and when I started to understand what had happened and why it had happened, it was when I stopped taking footy for granted and I realised that it's culturally fragile and so people always ask me now who I brag for well yeah I've got a special the dog you know I've got a special feeling for the dogs because I know a lot of the people out there but I essentially brag for the game and um, coming from Tasmania the game's now in trouble in Tasmania so I don't take it for granted at all. And, I mean, in this book that you've written about the Bulldogs, you do go back in that history. And I had learnt a lot, and I think people that love football will love your book, but people like me that love football and almost know nothing about it, um, I think we'll get even more out of it because you explain how Footscray, as it was originally, even came into the VFL. It was sort of part of the big narrative is that they came in because they kind of forced their way in because they weren't in that competition originally. Yeah, I think if you want to understand the psychology of of, of the Footscray stroke Western Bulldogs Football Club, you've got to go right back to, to, to White Arrival and there's two rivers, one's freshwater, one's saltwater and the freshwater rivers where the whitefellas congregate around and just as it was a very important Koori area, um, the other, the saltwater river becomes an industrial sewer. And it becomes a place with a lot of industrial odours. And from virtually the start of, from what time of white settlement, the people on the east look down on the people on the west. And um, and so the west then grows. And, and now, of course, it's this multiracial, multicultural, multireligious place. But it's still got a sense of being the west and it's still got a sense of being different and it's still got a sense that the big decisions are made by people on the other side of the Maribyrnong River. And when the dogs started to come from nowhere um, 
during 2016, when they made their run, a lot of those social forces started to build and gather around them. So it became, you know, that's the great thing about it. It's, it's a great footy story, but it's a, it's a much bigger story than that as well. And there's key players. And, I mean, you focus on a couple and um, it'd be no surprise that Luke Beveridge is one of them and Bob Murphy is another, but there's others as well. But tell us about those two because they... And I suppose Peter Gordon, they, they all were there at the right time and they all played different parts. I don't know who you want to start with. Should we start with Luke Beveridge? Yeah, well, he's a very different man. Um, he's, um, he's a tough man and he's a hard man, but he's um, a man who's got great gifts with people and he's a man who's I think, has thought about the big things in life. He's not the sort of man who'd want to argue about the number of people who attended his inauguration. And if you put Donald Trump at one end of a scale of masculine leadership, Luke Beveridge is at the complete opposite. You don't think he'd give away his medal no, once he won think, it? <laughs> no, I don't think he would. And um, Luke Beveridge doesn't need to be told he's good and he doesn't need to be seen um, you know, at the moment of glory. He doesn't need that. Um, and the essence of his relationship is coach is, is relationship. Uh, and like the people out at the club, he's much loved man by the women who work there as well as the men. He's best understood by his presence. He's someone you feel safe around. And he has the ability to... Um, to, to, to He can project belief onto people. And Luke, my favourite quote about him in the book, Luke Dalhouse says his confidence follows you out on out onto the field. Well, writing this book, there are a number of technical difficulties with this book, but he had followed my writing for years because he was at the Bulldogs in 93 and um, he, he, he just always believed I could write a book which actually reflected the greatness of what occurred and um, his confidence followed me out onto the page. So he was... He's, he's a really interesting man. He, you know, in his first year he unlocked their creativity and then in their second year he... He hardened them up, and by the time they got to the finals, they they were, you know, their, their Latin motto is Sede nullius, surrender nothing. Well, they had that. They surrendered nothing. But they also had this creativity to them, this lightning-fast handball where they could move the ball between eight or nine of them and no-one else could touch it, and they could put it into places without, that no-one was there but someone was there by the time the ball got there. So they, he, they, were, they were a terrific team. Bob Murphy's partner is incredibly important because, um, you know, he's a beautiful footballer to watch and he was the reigning All-Australian captain, not many of the Bulldogs captain, and he's injured, so he misses... Um, which is a huge thing for footballers because the the you know it's all about client you know the grand, winning a grand final is Mount Everest and any of them that are any good they want to get to the top so he gets within sight of the summit and then it doesn't happen for him but he's um, he's a very he's very like beverage they're both very astute with people you know um, high high emotional intelligence and he so Bob Murphy is con, is is around the club and he's constantly like all the players would tell you um the beverage cared for them but also that um that Bob Murphy was there for them all the time one of them Clay Smith is a pretty rough tough character he, he would say that um Bob always knew when I needed to talk to him um so the Bob would come up and, you know and that would be the moment um so he was really important but then then you've got all these other characters, like Easton Wood is a very different sort of man. 
Um, you know, if there's, you know, he's he's a very tough footballer, but you know, he's he nearly gave the game away as a junior because he didn't like people shouting at him. And um, you know, he 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 was taken shooting rabbits when he was a kid. And the next day, he told his mother he's never going to shoot rabbits again. Um, so he's a, he's a very different sort of person. Uh, they had great elders within their team. They had people like Matthew Boyd and Dale Morris and Jordan Ruffhead. They are really good fellows, but they all. It also mattered a lot, I think, that their outstanding young player, Marcus Bontempelli, totally bought in. Uh, like, he's a champion at the age of 20, Bontempelli. He totally bought in to, what, to this different culture and this different idea of footy and footy teams and caring for one another. He totally bought into it. So when you get the elders buy in and the champion young fella buys in, when you've got a great coach and a great captain and a great fella on the edges who's the captain the spiritual captain that's why they won it they had a great spirit and uh, you dedicate the book to fans women yeah and i mean i suppose susan alberti is a big um person in the club as well and in the women's game as well and so you've got all of this this story there yeah there is a line in the book where you say that you know in 2015 the bulldogs you know didn't win that year yeah um luke beveridge thinks they could have yeah but at the end of it it's like well we need a good story that's what's going to do it for us i I found that fascinating that a story could be behind such a a winning team not just the the game play well the, the last two premierships have been won by clubs creating a heightened sense of brotherhood and to, you need a story to do that and you need absolutely everyone to buy in. And if one person doesn't buy in, you can fracture the whole thing. And uh, that, that's, that was Jake Stringer's fate, was that he didn't quite get what it, it was involved in, in buying in. But, yeah, there's, there's got to be a story and there's got to be great honesty among the group and, and everyone's got to be together at a fine point. And what do you think is going to happen this year? I, I mean, the Bulldogs didn't make the finals last year. The Tigers won it. And I think there is a sense that the win from the Bulldogs in 2016 made it possible for every team in the competition to to be grand yeah. finalists and, and ultimately win the premiership. But what will happen this year? Will we be able to see that storytelling take hold again in the Bulldogs, do you think? Well, I think... Um the big difference between Richmond and, and the Dogs was that Richmond had the All-Australian captain at full back, they had a Coleman medalist at full forward and they had two Brownlow medalists in between. The Dogs had a bloke at full back that in three years did not get one senior game at Geelong. They didn't have a full forward. They changed their ruckman there. At centre-half forward they had a 19-year-old kid playing his 11th game and he'd, up until six games ago he'd never played in the forward line and their best midfielder was a 20-year-old kid. Um, so what they did, they, 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 they sort of played at 150% of what they were worth. And, and if you do that in sport as in life, there'll come a time when you've only got 50% left. You can't be up there all the time. Um, but they're back, the dogs are back. They've got 19 players that have played in the premiership. They've got a great coach. Um, you'd never want to write him off. So, um, yeah, watch the doggies. Uh, but... I reckon if there's a team that have got a story that's going to carry them a long way, it's Essendon Football Club. 
So, um, I mean, it would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it, if the Doggies won it one year, then Richmond. I mean, if Essendon win it. I mean, the Dogs win and, 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 and Richmond's win. They went off like volcanoes and I reckon they're of about equal force. I think the Dogs is more magical. I mean, the Dogs didn't even know until the morning of the grand final that their Ruckman was going to play and their Ruckman was a converted full back. Um, and then they had all those injuries coming into the finals. Coming into the first final, they're at 67 to 1 to win. And the book takes its title from this amazing woman who barracks for the dogs called Carmen Petropolo. She has this Joan of Arc moment because they lost the last roster match um, no, in Perth. They have to go back to Perth. They haven't won there for years. Their average losing margin is 70 points in recent times. And she has her Joan of Arc moment. She has this premonition they're going to win the flag when no one in Australia believes they are. And on the Monday she's walking to work. She's going to a favourite coffee shop on South Bank and she's wearing her bulldog scarf and a bloke on a building site yells out to her, um, I reckon your boys are going to win. Uh, two weeks off will do them the world of good. And she looks up and likes his face and she thinks that's all we need, a wink from the universe. And they got it. It's an amazing story. It's a great tale, isn't it? And I, I suppose, I mean, what about you in football? You say you're, you're a fan of the game. Are you going to continue to write? Are you going to write more books like this, do you think, Martin? I mean, we all want to read more of your work. Oh, that's lovely of you to say that. Um, I, 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 most of the footy books I've written, I've never intended to write them. Like the first one I wrote because Terry Wheeler asked me, um, the Michael Long book is a huge, that's a huge story that goes on forever. Um, I wrote a book with Richo because we just had those terrible fires here in Melbourne and I'd done an interview with a climate scientist and been terrified by what I thought was coming and I got offered to do this book with Richo and I thought, oh, well, that'll be, that could be a way to relax. Um, and then this book I did because because Beveridge asked me to. So um, it's a ma- some people, when they ask you, you can't say no. And footy for me, like I feel as a footy writer a bit like these people who live in the Dingle Peninsula in Ireland who write in Irish. Like I, I, I write about this game, which in global terms is tiny, um, but I was born into that culture and I understand that it's native to me and I understand it, I understand the people around it and I enjoy writing about it and I get a real kick that that, that, peop- that people I write about enjoy that, you know, like it starts with me in a pub in St Kilda the week after a grand final and there's this off-duty cop and he's, I don't know how long he's been in the pub and I say he's not drunk but he's deeply immersed in, he's, he's a, a lifelong Bulldog supporter, he's witnessed this miracle, this mysterious event and he wants to understand it with a policeman's logic and he says to me, <laughs> he says to me there's nothing in our history that said we could do this and, and I write, he's right and then I do an essay on the history. Well, I got a tweet, got it connected up on Twitter, his wife Frank, he's delighted that he's in the book. That's when I get a kick out of it. Yeah. And I suppose you did mention earlier um, about Tassie and, um, you know, a, a lot of us, we've, we've spoken on this program numerous times to people wanting to get an AFL club up in, in Tasmania. And, yeah. um, I well, mean, look, how far away is that? Do you think well, it's forever away maybe? Well, maybe you should get me back just to talk about that because it's now such a complex problem. Mm. It's now so complex that um, we, I don't think even that now. 
Um, I don't even think that is, is the immediate solution. The game is in real problems. And I keep saying to journalists, you've got to stop talking to the AFL. The AFL are in part responsible for what's happened down there. And people have got to start talking to the presidents and to the volunteers that are actually keeping the game alive down there. Um, they are the people that we have to listen to because if it can die in Tasmania, it can die anywhere. And, at, you know, the AFL's delusion that this game is like American football, bullshit, it's like American football. American football, America is an exporter of culture. We're an importer of culture. American football rests on college sport. Our game has only two levels, grassroots and the top. And if it dies, if it, if it, if it, if it dies or, or, or suffers serious at the grassroots then the game at the top is going to suffer and while I was at the dogs I said to their chief recruiter is there more talent out there than there used to be or less and he replied less that's that's the point we're going to have to have part two of this conversation because <laughs> I've kept you longer than I'm really allowed to. Um, Martin Flanagan, thank you. No, thank you very much. Talking about really the history of, the very recent history of how Melbourne is the way it is today. It's much greener, busier and more dynamic than it was in 1985, about the time when Rob Adams came to Melbourne and started working with the council. He's uh, now Director of City Design and Projects at the City of Melbourne and his significant contribution to the rejuvenation of Melbourne is documented in a new book he's co-edited called Urban Choreography. Uh, the book articulates the continuous yet gradual changes that have enlivened our city. Uh, it's honest about the mistakes made along the way and the work that's still to be done. And it's really great to have you on The Grapevine. Rob, thanks for being there. Oh, it's great to be on. And invitation. I loved them. Um, fl- I mean, there's a lot of text in this book, but there's a lot of images as well. And I loved flipping through and looking at the kind of side by side images that show, you know, life back in 1985 or around that era and today. And I, I suppose I'd love you to start by telling us how you first got to Melbourne and I suppose your first impressions of the city because you didn't grow up here. I didn't grow up, no. I was actually born in Zimbabwe and uh, had been working in Sydney for seven months when I was lucky enough to get the job to come and work on the strategy plan for Melbourne with the city of Melbourne. And uh, what what you had in uh, when I arrived, which is 83, you had a city with great bones, but uh, it was actually slowly losing its pulse. Uh, the, the energy of the city was being moved out to the suburbs, places like Chadston, and on a of an evening or a Saturday afternoon or a weekend. If you came into central Melbourne, uh, there weren't a lot of people. Um, you know, they'd actually taken their trip out to the suburbs and stayed there. So the challenge was, how do you bring people back to the centre of Melbourne? How do you uh, make this a place that could work for longer hours without losing um, the look and feel of Melbourne? And, and that was really what the, the 85 plan tried to do. And there's a lot in this book, and we won't get to half of it this morning, but um, there was one development that changed the council's approach, uh, I understand, and that's the Collins Place development that really basically cemented up the view out onto the street. And that seemed to me to be a point at which council said, look, we've got to do something about this. We need to activate streets, not close buildings off to them. 
That's right. I mean, that, that was uh, not only the council, but I think the state government of the day and the Collins Street Defence Movement, which uh, Evan Walker was a part of. Um, that development, uh, done by a very famous architect, um, did what uh, a lot of developments around the world were doing. It, it internalised itself. It, it, it denied the street. And in, in fact, if you even today go up to the top end of Flinders Lane, you, you will see um, you know, a lot of uh, concrete walls and entrance to car parks and air conditioning ducts and uh, we've managed to change some of that and get them to externalize but it's still there and the i suppose the secret of um, a lot of the work that we did was to say incrementally you need to make your streets better if uh, with every development that goes in uh, the streets are poorer for it then you're going to get a poorer city and but to the contrary case if uh, every street is improved it becomes a good pedestrian experience it's safe you know there's trees good furniture well then slowly over time the city will improve and um, that i think lies at the base of this book uh, urban choreography that uh, it's uh, many small uh, actions over a long period of time that have really helped uh, turn the city around um, because they are city-wide. They're not, you know, on one site or, or one grand, grand project. Uh, they part of the, the policy base of, of how the city operates. And you say many times in the book that if uh, the council or you had declared at the outset that you're going to reclaim something, what is it, 90 hectares of space away from cars and traffic, that you couldn't have done it. But it's it seems to me that it's been... Well, stealth maybe is, is too strong a word, but you've slowly chipped away and achieved that goal without really ever declaring that that was the main aim. That, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, the policy was clearly stated in, in the 1985 plan. The, the policy said we will give priority to pedestrians and public transport, and um, it didn't go as far as bicycles in that day, but bicycles fall into that category. And so if you've got a policy statement that says that's what you're going to do, uh, by inference it says we're going to start taking that away from the motor car. We're going we're to favour those other forms of transport. So I can remember getting very excited in uh, 85 when we, you know, added a, a bit of footpath to Mason Street in South Yarra and planted 14 trees and uh, that was our big first project and uh, we slowly then went around Ligon Street was an early one that uh, was actually on the boards uh, when the plan came in in 85 and, 85 and that has been the slow process you know widening footpaths planting trees um, de designing furniture and over the time as you say 90 hectares of asphalt have come out of the city and people haven't noticed it. They haven't noticed that there are no more slip lanes that allow cars to go around at speed. Um, that at the top of the grid on Victoria Street where you get those little triangles, that many of those roads have closed and become part of the park or part of the public space surrounding them. And that's the importance of those photographs you see, because it's only when you see the contrast between what it used to look like and what it looks like today that you realise that that, that incremental process has substantially changed our city. And I mean, I can celebrate because I, I'm, I'm a cyclist. I own a car as well, but primarily I'm a cyclist. I can celebrate the changes that have happened in Melbourne, but it hasn't always been supported. There has been lobbies against it. I, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the controversy around Swanston Street's closing, for instance, and, and so forth. And so being able to deal with those interest groups seems to be a big part of the success story here with Melbourne. I think we have. You know, we've we've been, we've always engaged. Uh, it's a really big part of what we we've done. In fact, the eighty five plan, in truth, comes out of the community action plans that were put 
put in place uh, in the late 70s by people like Ruth and Maury Crow in North Melbourne. So it was the community's voice that was talking in the late 70s, early 80s about the need to change the city to make it a better place for people. And, and so uh, dealing with the community and, and uh, letting them have a voice and understanding what it was that was concerning them really enabled us to, I think, regain some trust in the, the process of change. And um, at times you lose that trust. I mean, uh, Swanson Street was a classic example where, you know, uh, most of the retailers along there thought that the street would die if we took uh, the majority of cars out of it. And what's happened is the pedestrian numbers have gone from 12,500 to 45,000. So, and, and people buy from, you know, walking, not from the, you know, the seats of their cars. So you, you need to, sometimes you, you get pushed back um, and, and you need to deal with that and listen to those voices and, and, and try and encourage people to embrace change, which is never easy. Well, one thing that I suppose that people, you know, could argue uh, about that hasn't always been positive change is the massive residential towers we have now. But that idea of bringing, and and I'm referring mainly to sort of setbacks and how how large some of them are, but sure. but the the beginning of bringing people back to live in the city is quite an interesting story. And I wonder if you could even do it now. The city of Melbourne actually invested in some of the early apartments and fitted them out in a commercial building. Can you talk about how that came about? Sure. Well, as, as part of the, the, the plan in 85, it, it became very obvious to us that the, the one ingredient we didn't have was, was a, a, a residential community in the central city. And most good cities do have a residential community. And that's what extends the life of a city into, you know, into the evening and beyond. So um, we set ourselves a target. Um, there wasn't a lot of science to that target, uh, but we had to put a target into the plan. And uh, late on a Friday afternoon, I can remember saying 8,000 people in 15 years years um, and uh, that then gave us the impetus to say well how do you do that and you're right we we, we did a whole lot of things we, we did take over three floors on a little building called Talma opposite the town hall and we only leased the accommodation and converted to six units and we ran a program called keys to the city where we showed people what could happen in these older buildings and um, we also looked at, uh, you know, putting together a number of the benefits that came out of living in the city. You know, the, the fact that you could, um, and, and I won't run through them, they're all in the book, but we were, we were lucky. Macquarie Bank, um, through James Curran, who was their property manager, saw the benefit of what we were talking about and converted number one Exhibition Street opposite the old Herald Building. And with a bank investing in bringing pedestrians, uh, uh, people back to live in uh, the city, the, the market opened up. And it was on the back of the crash in the ni late 1980s, so there was plenty of stock in the market that was um, you know, not being occupied, and we could show how to occupy that. And uh, suddenly we found within 15 years we did have these 8,000 people living in the central city. Oh, we're listening to uh, Rob Adams. Urban Choreography is a, a new book that's out and really um, tracks how Melbourne changed from the mid-1980s to now and how urban planning has really driven much of that change. And I suppose if we stay on apartments, I mean, now it's sort of, it's kind of, funny to think of not many people living in the city because we've got just tens of thousands of people living there now but it, some of the development people haven't embraced and haven't been enthusiastic about and I suppose we can say you know South Bank and Docklands some of the buildings there are you know we're not necessarily proud of what what happened to bring on such a boom of high-rise apartments uh, Rob? Well I think 
in, in the previous one, I indicated uh, what brought on that boom is that people started, you know, the banks started investing and then developers realised, in fact, um, that residential was a really good development. There were cohorts of people, you know, young students, um, uh, baby boomers who were moving out of the, the suburbs that wanted to live in the city. So there was demand for the product. But the thing that um, has made it a slightly vexed um, uh, problem, and, and there's actually the subject of an exhibition that opens on Thursday night at the town hall called Between the Street and the Sky, is that the, the, the whole premise of bringing development to the city was on, on the basis that you would protect the street, that you would, you would actually set buildings back at a certain height so that the street got sunlight in and you didn't get the darn drafts and the street became a quality space mainly because 80% of uh, the city's public space is made up of streets. So design a good street, you design a good city. And what happened is various planning ministers over the time slowly allowed uh, that uh, setback to be eroded and you started to get buildings coming straight up off the street um, and you know, to enormous heights. And what they also did is by not, allow, not requiring setbacks, is every site became a development site, and that was never the idea. The idea was the smaller sites, the historic sites, would be protected by that, that setback. So there's, there's a, a bit of redressing that needs to happen, and um, the, the current minister through C270 has, has started that process by requiring and mandating setbacks and uh, you know, reducing the, the floor area factor that you can get on a site. So um, we, you know, I think the course is on the way back to some sort of sanity about how you do this. And I, I suppose for those uh, that are concerned about what might happen with the new suburb, and I think it's just outside of the city of Melbourne, down um, down there near Port Melbourne, uh, Fisherman's, Bend. Fisherman's Bend, are we likely to learn the lessons of what happened in South Bank and Docklands and do a better job, you think, in Fisherman's Bend? Are you optimistic about that? Look, I, I, I'm always optimistic because I, I think, um, you know, particularly the people in Melbourne uh, don't let you get away with much. Uh, you know, they, they, they're on your case the whole time. And uh, I think the ministers now just uh, in the last week stopped development down in Fisherman's Bend until such time as the planning uh, controls are put in place. And I think that's a good thing. I think, uh, you know, we, we need to um, understand the vision of what we're trying to achieve there and then make sure that they support it. By, by the planning controls. And Fisherman's Bend opens up an opportunity that you don't get in the central city, and that is that the blocks, the plots, are, are much larger. So people forget that when South uh, Bank started, there were about five or six developments there that uh, built to the perimeter of their site and had a central courtyard um, and, and got reasonably high densities through that. Um, the same could happen down in Fisherman's Bend. You don't have to build towers to get high density. I mean, the European cities have shown us that. You know, Barcelona is one of the densest, uh, uh, you know, cities in the world, um, in, in, and particularly in the European context. So I think there is an opportunity to get some special out of Fisherman's Bend, but we, we need to stop and, and uh, you know, consider carefully the planning controls around that area. And can planning um, do much for housing affordability, Rob? Because I think that's another area that, you know, there are great hopes that our city not only is, you know, a sustainable one and a, and a wonderful dynamic place to be, but it's also affordable for everybody, but that's, that not, that's not necessarily panning out, particularly in the central part of the city. 
Look, I, th- I think you can, and and you know there there are cities and, and countries around the world that have um, brought in what is called inclusive rezoning, which is that um, if you're going to build a large residential development, that a certain percentage of that residential needs to be affordable, and it needs to be protected to be affordable. So you know it, it doesn't sort of it's not affordable when it's built and then it's sold on from for some uh, to make a profit. So there are mechanisms uh, around the world that show us how to do this. Um, we need to, in fact, uh, learn from those exercises because to create um, areas where you don't get that diversity of population, where the co-workers uh, of the city who are vital to its functioning, you know, can't afford to live, then uh, in the long run, the, the, the city will suffer from that. And uh, I think the opportunity is now. Um, I think um, the thing that is driving, uh, you know, Australian cities at the moment is this realization that our population uh, is increasing rapidly and Melbourne will double its population in the next 30 years. And there are a lot of people listening will say, well, don't let it do that. Sadly, it's going to do that because of a whole lot of forces that are outside of our control, including the fact that we've seen as being a good city to live in. So let's do that cleverly. um, And let's do that so we actually admire the city that we're going to live in in 30 years' time. And a, a couple of quick points. I, I've only got you for another couple of minutes, but I mean, last year, one of my kind of local um, places to drop by and, and have a beer is at Myers Place. And that was one of the first kind of little bars in oh, Melbourne. Yeah. And that was part of the enlivening of the, the alleyways and so forth uh, over the years. It just closed down. And I, I suppose we always get this change um, happening. But how do you see that side of the cultural life of Melbourne evolving? Uh, you know, we, we started with just a few of these bars. We've got a lot now. Do you see that continuing as well? Well, that goes back to the previous discussion about um, how do you protect um, a diverse um, set of buildings in the central city. So if you remove things like the setback uh, at the podium level, which makes every site a development site, over time you're going to lose a whole lot of fabric that had a different rental structure to the new stuff that's being built. And that makes it more difficult for those small establishments to survive. So uh, if we want a city that's diverse, and, and, and really diversity is one of the four or five essential ingredients of a good uh, city, you, you're going to need to not make every site a development site. Uh, you know, you need to keep the heritage, you need to keep the small blocks, um, you need to keep a lower rental structure for some of those uses, uses that need the lower rental structure. And, and you need to support those small businesses. So, you know, one of the support mechanisms we gave to small business uh, in the city uh, from a hospitality point of view was allowing them to trade out on the footpath. We're still the lowest city in Australia in terms of how much we charge for that footpath space. And that meant a very small tenancy could make itself viable by trading out onto the footpath. And um, it's those small things that don't seem significant really are important in keeping that diversity of a city. And uh, before I let you go, um, what is going to happen with the city square now? I know, um, you know, we're having one of the biggest sure. investments in in uh, the underground rail that we've seen since the 70s or so. Um, what are we likely to see when that site becomes available again? 
it's very hard to see one of the projects you designed actually demolished and to be doing time-lapse photography at the moment. And I look at it and think, oh, yeah. But uh, the, the news is good. Um, the city square is coming back uh, at the end of uh, the development of the station. Up on the Collins Street end, uh, there will be an entry into uh, the, the station, pretty much where the tree was on the corner. Um, not quite in that location, but close to it. But the rest of the square will come back as a public space. And um, we have an agreement uh, with the state government that uh, is, is pretty watertight as to the nature of that um, you know, square into the future. So, yes, the city square will be back. And um, it's interesting to see people missing it now that it's gone because, uh, you know, it was one of those subtle little spaces where the activity like you know, the, the coffee house on the corner and around the edges of the square put life back into that uh, part of the city. Um, but as I say, the good news, it'll come back. And Metro is going to deliver a lot of uh, public realm improvements. Um, Franklin Street will become a much better, better street at the end of um, Metro. Uh, University Square up in Parkville will be a fantastic space, which we've already started construction on. Um, so there are a lot of very good wins coming out of Metro. And and um, I'm a strong supporter of it. I think it's going to be hugely beneficial to the city. Thank you for spending some time with us on Triple R this morning. I feel like we should have booked you for double the time, but it's been wonderful to have you and uh, all the best with the exhibition and with the book as well. Fantastic. Thanks very much. And the Me Too movements challenged all of us, and particularly men, to confront the scourge of sexual harassment and violence. It started as a result of allegations against American producer Harvey Weinstein, of course, and with the Academy Awards about to get underway for 2018, Me Too is expected to feature at the Oscar ceremony today. Uh, it's also International Women's Day on Thursday, so we've asked Mary Crooks, Exec Director of Victorian Women's Trust, to pop by and talk with us, and it's always good to see you and I think this Academy Award ceremony that's about to start um, you know Hollywood's made it clear, clear that Weinstein is never welcome again but I wonder how you're seeing things change Mary as a result. Hi Kalia uh, look I think uh, what is really important with this sort of avalanche of, of um, complaints and exposure is that some real change comes about as a result of this rather than rather than backlash and then inertia and people being quietly distressed and it goes to ground again. I, I think it's interesting that since the Weinstein um, revelations, uh, at a personal level, personal and professional level, I made a point of talking about this with every woman that I'd either had a business meeting with or, you know, catching up or whatever. And it's quite interesting that every woman that I've spoken to, including myself, we have our own stories of, especially when we were younger women, uh, of having unwanted sexual advances from uh, men who are in positions of uh, esteem and regard and uh, success and authority. So I think it's probably one of those situations that for every story that breaks in the media, uh, you can just about probably say that then for every one of those women, there are probably another 10 or another 20 or whatever. My interest is in making sure that this just doesn't remain in some celebrity space. I know there will be a focus tonight uh, with the awards, but... I think we have to channel our minds on uh, bolder strategies that actually change the culture rather than set up contestation and, and backlash. Uh, 
I'm interested, for example, you might recall there were, over the Don Burke issue, there were Channel 9 executives who came out and said, yeah, he was a creep, the guy was a creep, and they knew that. Well, I think the interesting issue there is, hang on, wouldn't that suggest that those same executives have actually failed to maintain a safe workplace for women and men in their employ? So I'm not sure we can afford any longer to have men in positions of authority and power around those protections able to get away with just saying, the guy's a creep. So I, we're cudgelling our brains at the Trust and with other discussions with people as to what needs to give to actually have those who have been inadvertently complicit by not doing anything actually feel the force of the law, <clears throat> either in terms of that they've not been able to guarantee safe workplaces under our OG health and safety provisions. So... I admire women, for example, like Tracy Spicer and the effort that she's making. It's superb. Uh, but I think a lot of us also have to look at how we can support her work and the work of others by putting the onus back on the structures and the processes and the culture of ascendant males who have been perpetuating this kind of bad behaviour for decades. Mm. And I think this sort of the, the, the masculine, um, in air quotes, culture um, that, that's been spoken about in Canberra as well recently, but also, you know, in Canberra, people looking to corporate Australia and saying, well, what's in place there? Should we be taking that into the into public office as well? Like the, the bands with interactions between, sexual interactions between um, uh, bosses and, and subordinates and, and so forth. And I wonder, I mean, how do you see that playing out? Um, let's start in corporate Australia. Is is that enough or you're, you're thinking there? There should be more, more the, laws. What what is sustaining the whole <clears throat> harassment thing is it, is essentially uh, not. It's something a bit more than the remnants of a patriarchal order, to be honest. Where where there are deep, deep cultural assumptions about the inferiority, the inferior status attached to being a woman. Uh, that a woman shouldn't be in, you know, um, uh, a professional kind of role. These are still lingering, deep lingering cultural traits. And so I think to me a ban on a Prime Minister's ban, uh, you know, in, in typically Australian lexicon becomes known as the bonking ban. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's a sidestep. I think it's, it's um, a ridiculous kind of idea, to be honest. I mean, how on earth are you going to police it? I mean, the mind boggles. To me, the deeper issue is not about uh, whether a minister, um, uh, he or she has some uh, threat of, you know, um, breaking the code in that respect. We've got to be understanding um, what do we need to come to terms with in terms of the power relations in workplaces, the unethical practices of, say, shifting somebody around in a job. They're the things that are the significant breaches. So I, I think we've lost the plot a bit and we've got a little bit carried away with some of the more superficial aspects of it. Well, one of the things that has disturbed me hugely, and you, you wouldn't be surprised by this, Carly, is that I found it almost amusing, to be honest, to hear people pontificating about the need not to go into people's private lives. Now, on the one hand, I respect that principle. I think what goes down privately goes down privately. But I was bemused at the fact that no one bothered to remember that that 
private public distinction completely disappeared with Gillard uh, and her private life was up for grabs for everyone. That's right. Her, her um, <coughs> status as uh, her marital status, everything, everything was discussed. Her, yeah. her choice of partner, yeah. uh, the condition of her fruit bowl, the condition of her womb, uh, everything was up for grabs. So I've, I've found it a little bit of a new low in a way to think that people haven't even been able to to recall that a few years ago when things were flipped into the female context uh, that it was no holds barred and I think un until we come to grips with the way the way we approach these gendered issues in politics then we're going to stay at that that low bar level. And I, I suppose I've been concerned and I think many people have as well is that particularly with the Barnaby Joyce um, issue that the women uh, he he seems in in some ways, or is it media deflecting onto the women involved? And I suppose uh, not only with his current partner, uh, but also with a complaint that's been made to him through the National Party that the that the women involved are um, are, are becoming the focus now, and that it has been forever. Thus, I have to say that that uh, you know there's that old notion of you know hell hath no fury. Uh, but a woman scorned, uh, which is an interesting um, patriarchal condemnation of women. Um, I'd say hell hath no fury uh, that a, a guy in the, the, the ruling order um, is found out and then goes into backlash and denial and closure, you know, hiring public relations companies and doing this and doing that all to protect themselves. I think the interesting issue since the Catherine Marriott allegation was made public uh, and her privacy and desire for anonymity was was um, breached. But I think from what I hear, many women have actually gone to ground, many women in, in rural and regional parts of Australia have gone to ground with their experience and complaints of sexual harassment, which raises for me the issue that you can't just expect a woman to pick up the phone and ring the equal opportunity structures, those jurisdictions that exist. It's too big a step. It's a humongous step for a woman to take. So I think there's actually another interesting issue of response in all of this, which is what can be put in place other than simply outing so someone on social media, what kind of processes might we think of that actually make it easier, safer and easier and more effective for a woman's complaints to actually um, be help her even to locate that complaint, put it in a context and guide her into what she might want to do if she does want to take it further. I think it's a really tough ask to expect a woman to all of a sudden go into the public arena or semi-public jurisdictional arena with a complaint. So I think there's some work to be done. Yeah, and I mean, does, does any country or does anywhere in Australia do this well, Mary? Look, I think... Uh, certainly my experience of cases where women have been really bold and courageous and brave uh, and and spoken up and filed complaints, they have, by the sort of closure that's gone on by the, 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 the men in power who've closed ranks, they've been able to throw money at cases, they've been able to use the full force of legal uh, loopholes and legal process to drag things out and they have broken women. I've... You know, there was a case years ago with with women who complained about in the aviation um, industry, and it's just 
it ended in tears. It was just dreadful, the impact. So, so I would say that our structures and processes actually are, in that sense, proving deficient uh, because of the, the sheer effort and strength that's required to actually pursue your claim. Yeah, Mary Crooks is with us uh, from the Victorian Women's Trust and I know the trust, uh, Mary, just to kind of change tack slightly or ch- change conversation slightly, uh, has been speaking a lot about economic security in older women and look, we've been talking to you about this for years and also to other people that older women uh, who have been carers and, and in the workforce for many, many years are also forming the longest line trying to get into housing now mm. and I, I'm I'm concerned about that. I think a lot of people are. What What's happened here? What's made this um, such an issue for, for older women? Well, it's not just for older women, Kalia, although I think, you know, it, it's to me uh, pretty tragic to think that um, a woman in Australia can now get into her twilight years and and end up facing possibly homelessness or certainly poverty because she simply done her job throughout her life, either as an unpaid um, a domestic labourer uh, or a woman paid in a, poorly paid in a um, more marginal um, sector. I think the, what we've got to do is you, you, can't, you, you can't get anywhere on this unless you join the dots that uh, pay equity or pay inequity uh, women, a lot of women doing work in our society which deems that it doesn't matter if it's low paid when in fact it's vital work. So the kind of work a lot of women do, the fact that they're paid less, the fact that um, one in three Australian women has no superannuation, one in three. But I might add about one in four or one in five Australian men don't either, so there's an interesting issue there. So a lot of women who can't get enough work So there's, you know, way back in 1907, we were talking about the harvester judgment, about a male breadwinner, what did he need to earn to keep a family and live in frugal comfort? Well, now we have in 2017 an issue of of a lot of women and some men who actually can't get enough work in this country to live in frugal comfort. So the prospect of women going into poverty or homelessness is actually a manifestation of her decades of underemployment, working in areas of low pay, casual work, not the income protection of superannuation, very few savings, and and not being paid in the domestic home. That's they're the dots that we've got to join. But look, I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily bleak, <clears throat> but I do think that we've got to have some major, more radical interventions uh, at a policy level around retirement income for women, around pay equity. We can't keep on entertaining the facts each year saying, oh, the gender pay gap is now, on average, 18%. You know, in some sectors, like across banking and finances, that gender pay gap is about 30%. So we've got to be thinking, what would it take to actually close that pay gap. So one of the things we're looking at closely at the moment and starting to talk to people is around our legislative and our um, jurisdictional structures in Australia um, around pay equity. Uh, And it looks as though there's been some sliding away 
from the commitment to equal pay for work of equal value over the last 25 years or so. So there's a view that we're actually not so much treading water around equal pay for work of equal value, but we're actually going backwards. And the award, modern award system and the centralised bargaining system hasn't actually been helping women. So there's some deep structural issues here that aren't there to daunt us, but I think they therein lies the key to trying to genuinely improve conditions for women on the economic front. And are there uh, more women now at the negotiating tables to make those changes possible? Uh, <clears throat> there are more women in the workforce, we know that, but, but it's interesting because at a structural and cultural level, enterprise bargaining, for example, that you know was pretty much in, um, ushered in in the Hawke-Keating era, um, enterprise bargaining is largely um, is successful for those who are unionised and successful for unions that are also strong. So who misses out when the story comes down to strong unions and unions being able to um, bargain with their employers, women are missing out. So they're just not at the table in the same way. So they're in the workforce, but they're not actually there in those power dynamics. So so I think there's some uh, barely perceptible disadvantages that have been working in that regard that actually then compound women's status in the economy. So this uh, this Thursday is International Women's Day. I know um, at the Trust you always say every day is Women's Day, um, but uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of events that people can can get along to. There's some rallies happening, and I mean, what do you think the the rallies are going to be about? What's the what are the banners going to say? Do you think, Mary? What are the big issues? Uh, look, I, th- I think. Uh, I mean, the the both in the the positive, we have to retain, we have to keep nourishing our hope uh, and our endeavour in this regard. I mean, I think we can we can certainly say that this is a year in which we can note achievements and progress, absolutely. Um, but there's a lot of work to be done still, and I think it's remains a time this week of of. Um, Understanding that we will only get equality in this country by rolling up our sleeves, by by becoming um, forming alliances, by working with as much solidarity as possible. So I think it's just a timely call, International Women's Day, that um, we we can be dispirited at times, um, but we have a um, we have a firm belief that equality does benefit everybody. Uh, So my view, people have heard me say that feminism is in fact a nation-building program. It's a nation-building project. Uh, There's a lot of benefit to be had by greater equality between men and women. So we roll up our sleeves and we keep forging on. Well, enjoy this week. I know it's always a busy one for you and we hope to see you back at RRR really soon. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Carly. Um, Thank Mary you. Cooks, uh, Executive Director of Victoria Women's Trust. And you can head to their Facebook page. Someone has very helpfully put up a whole heap of events that you can get along to in Melbourne uh, and surround. So, uh, yeah, I won't read them out here, but there's lots that you can do. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.